Welcome to Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena. I'm a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and business growth. Our mission at Enter the Arena is to empower female founders to fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business with investment expertise and business coaching. Here we share the stories of inspirational female founders who've raised investment to inspire you to do the same. You'll hear their honest accounts of what it was really like to secure funding, the highs, the lows and the challenges they experienced on the journey. And along the way, we'll discuss top tips for how you can be successful too. Today I'm talking with Katie Cotton, the CEO and founder of Luna Daily, the award-winning body care brand for all skin, including intimate care. Yes, people, we are talking about vulvas. Now, Katie's on a mission to make products for and conversations about womanhood as natural as they should be by changing the narrative. And I can personally attest to the fact that Luna Daily products are just fabulous. and I'm a big fan. Now, Katie has a stellar background in the beauty industry as a brand manager for Maybelline at L'Oreal and most recently global head of brand at Charlotte Tilbury. So she's certainly got the credentials. But of course, building a successful startup comes with a whole different set of challenges that even the most successful industry experts need to get their head around. Katie recently closed an investment round for three million and is poised to expand the brand internationally, including in the USA. But what was it really like to raise money for a brand in the so-called feminine hygiene space? Let's meet Katie to find out how she did it, the challenges she overcame along the way, and her top tips for securing funding. So welcome, Katie. Hi, Julia. Lovely to see you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you. I'm so excited to talk about this fundraise. And um, I mean, I just got to start by saying that I love the strap line for Luna Daily, which is head, vulva, knees and toes. It's um, it's really inspired. So give us the elevator pitch. What's Luna Daily all about? So our purpose is to inspire women of all ages and stages to connect with each other and their entire bodies. And we do that first through pioneering a globally differentiated category of products second through normalising conversations, and third by revolutionising education. And so I also love our strapline because it's something that women of all ages and stages can connect with, uh, head, vulva, knees and toes, and it also really closely links to our product USP, that we are microbiome balancing body care for all skin, even your most intimate. That's amazing. And so tell us a bit about what you've got already in terms of your product range. What kind of, what products can people buy from you at the moment? So we have very curated range ranges, um, and that's to cater for women of all ages and stages. So we have a original daily care range, a fragrance-free range, which is for sensitive or allergy-prone skin, which is why it's brilliant for motherhood, and a hydrating range, which is great for dry or dehydrated skin, which is why it's perfect for menopause. Uh, okay, and so, so, so you're taking so you're taking women through the different phases of their um, their journey as a woman, I guess. Exactly. And, you know, recognising that everybody's womanhood experience is different and that we are not all the same. Uh, but there are two key life stages of women, you know, as women go through motherhood and menopause, where there are fundamental um, physical changes, skin changes, where they might be um, looking for a different type of product for them. OK, makes sense. And actually, 
a real gap in the market for something like this, I think. Um, so, but you developed this brand because of your own personal experiences, is that right, as a teenager? Tell us a bit more about that, Katie. Absolutely. So I can still today vividly remember the day. Um, I was 19 and I was at university and I'd actually been studying abroad in India. And I came back home and I was really unwell. And I was put on a course of antibiotics for six weeks, which if you've ever been on antibiotics, you know, even 10 days can be quite intensive. That had a fundamental impact on my skin microbiome, my gut microbiome. It, it fundamentally changed my microbiome. And uh, one of the results of that is that I got really bad thrush. And I'd never, I'd never had it before. I can still today remember the feelings of shame, of embarrassment, of confusion. And critically for me, from that point onwards, I wasn't able to use traditional shower gels or other body products to care for my intimate skin. But I really resented using these niche use, embarrassing, stigmatized products, which for the most part still today sit in a category called the feminine hygiene category. We all are sort of what's wrong with her associations. And, you know, ever since then, I felt that there is an underserving opportunity for women. And fast forward 15 years in a career in the beauty wellness industry, perhaps serendipitously, perhaps plans. Um, and not a lot has changed. Um, you know, I've worked across now pretty much every beauty wellness category and we've seen incredible innovation and incredible choice for women. Yet this category, not a lot has happened. And in the pandemic, I I mean, I think for all of us, the pandemic forced us to think about what was important to us. And for me, I realised that there was never going to be a good time to go and do this. And look, but life was short and I would end up regretting not going even to go rather than giving it a go. So I quit my job as Global Head of Brand at Charlotte Silbury in June 2020 and set out to create Luna Daily. Um, and here we are today, nearly two wow. years later, nearly three years so, later. <laughs> so you fully took the took the leap and went for it I mean what in those early days then what does it take to get this kind of idea off the ground what what were the steps you had to take so the first thing is becoming crystal clear around your brand positioning uh what you stand for what is your point of difference at a brand level um obsessing over your mission your purpose your values the identity look and feel of the brand and then for me, I had a pretty clear idea around what products we wanted to launch, um, product and packaging. I'm a product packaging geek. I absolutely love it. And I'm fortunate I've spent lots of my career in product development. And so um, the next is then, you know, formulating some, some original products. And so working with labs, with scientists, we have a Moon Daily Collective, which is a group of female gynecologists, dermatologists and other medical experts who back the brand. And so I went on the hunt for who could I find that was brilliant within that space. Um, and then I suppose collectively, once we had an amazing set of products and brilliant manufacturer to partner with us, it was then about going out to market and getting ready for launch. So um, tapping into retail as well as our own omnichannel, sorry, our own D2C offering. Um, but none of that could have been possible without, particularly in those early stages, bringing on board people to help. And this is at a time where, you know, you're you're pre even launching, you're pre any sort of investment. And so I was consulting literally to pay the bills. Um, for, you know, it was fortunate actually, probably in a lockdown because we were going out less. So taxis, red wine, out with your mates, all of those were lower <laughs> anyway. So my, my luckily my costs were lower, but um, a lot. You know, for most, you know 
pretty much all the people that helped me helped me pro bono. Um, and it was people I'd either met through my career or I was introduced to or I hunted out uh, to help build my network in all of those avenues, um, ultimately to mean that by the time we went to launch, we had the most amazing group of people supporting me um, before I even had a, you know, a full-time team on payroll. That's incredible. And that pan- the pandemic was such a great period for this creativity. And and you managed to capitalise on that, as you say, those incredible people you brought on board who actually probably did have a little bit of bandwidth during that time to to be able to get stuck in, which is really exciting. But I mean, getting a product ready, there must have also been some money involved in having to, to make that happen. And you were consulting on the side. Did you have to put your savings in at that point? Did you need to get any other money in the, at the, right at the beginning to help you with that? Yeah, so before we did a pre-seed round, which we did about six months before we launched, everything was self-funded. And so it was, yeah, it was as, as scrappy as how much consulting work do I need to do to pay for this? Uh, I think the biggest kind of expenditure, which we still did on Bootstrap, you know, was was working with brilliant designers to actually help me design and ideate the brand and brand strategy, brand strategist Dan, who is still with me today. Um, then actually through the formulation process, so... Um, we have an outsourced manufacturing model. And so I was really fortunate that I forged a partnership with a huge manufacturer who actually, as part of that partnership, offer a full service team. So with that agreement, I had a formulation scientist, packaging technologist, regulatory expert. And so we were able to work really closely with my vision for the products, with the gynecologist, dermatologists and their, their inputs, as well as them with a, a full service formulation expertise. Um there was then there are then other costs around you know testing safety regulatory claims testing and then packaging tooling because for some of our products we have bespoke owned packaging all of our formulas are bespoke and owned to us we have a trademark based formulation we have bespoke fragrances specific to the daily brand and so there's definitely costs involved but you can definitely do it on a shoestring it's more around the i think the thoughtfulness around the ideation uh, rather than spending hundreds of thousands of pounds on I don't think you need to spend hundreds of thousands, you know, on consumer research or on, you know, some, I think that more traditionally, I think definitely from my bigger brand experience, I was taught to believe you needed. Mm, that's really interesting. And then you say you, you did six months before launch, you did a pre-seed round. Tell us a little bit about that. So we've got to a point where we had formulation signed off. We had brand signed off. We had packaging signed off. Uh, then, in, you know, to actually get us to launch, so to actually hit go on production of those first volumes, we knew we needed, we're gonna, we were going to need some more money. And, you know, it's not about just getting through launch day, it's then about having some runway. And so that's when I raised our pre-seed. And so I went out to, it was, we, all, we did it all through high net worth individuals, so angels. And these were people that either I had met through my career uh, or kind of one step removed. So it was either sort of my own network or actually it ended up being lots of sort of ran- random inter- introductions. So it wasn't really a friends and family round. I actually didn't feel comfortable sort of going out to friends and family. I think maybe against the pandemic backdrop, I felt, you know, it just, I don't know. I, I just, I wanted it to not be because people felt they had to because they knew me. Um, and so actually it was more people that I'd either met through other, you know, other professionals. Uh, but I was really fortunate that I, ha- you know, Still to this day, I have the most supportive, incredible angel investors. And, you know, I remember being told, oh, you won't be able to raise that amount just from angels. Mm-mm, that's not possible. And I'm really glad I sort of didn't listen to that advice because <laughs> you can. And uh, I think often 
angel investors are overlooked as exactly for that you know oh will you be able to raise you know a few tens of thousands but no more than that and actually uh getting on board the right angel partners that really believe in your vision they're the people that are you know I'm so grateful to them because they were the people that in the very early days where we had no traction, we didn't, we hadn't even launched. It was just, it was just a great idea. And um, yeah, I, I raised it all through them and they've since, most of them have since followed on in our latest round. And how much did you raise on that, that pre-seed round? Uh, just over 600,000. Yeah, that's amazing. But, you know, that is the way to start is to go through your network because when you are at that kind of idea stage, People that know and trust you are the ones that are most likely to come in. And I'm, I'm going to sort of, um, I've got two things I want to pick up on there. One is you said you were lucky. And I'm going to just kind of push back on that slightly because I suspect that, that it's not about luck. It's about the fact that you had built a great network and you had a great reputation and you did a great job in finding those investors and making sure it was a good fit. Could you... You're, <laughs> you're very right you're <clears throat> very right I think I agree uh and you know it was I feel even, I feel really really proud in general of, of our fundraising journey because I put it in the same bucket as politics and mortgages we never took no one no one teaches you how to do it you know it's mm-hmm. not something we're taught at school and so you have to self-teach uh and so it's definitely been the biggest learning curve of my life uh and you know so I'm, I'm really proud of it what I mean by luck I suppose that lots well, maybe serendipity, I don't know, but so much about the Luna Daily brand and our success does feel like it's that wonderful combination of really, really hard work, amazing team, but also right timing and a sprinkling of good luck. And I do think in particularly in the early stages of startup world, everyone needs a bit of that luck. And so that's not to say it wasn't really hard work, but I definitely think we did. Have, we've had some great luck come our way and that might be, you know, so... Maybe I'm being too humble, but that, that's what I believe. I think there is a, yeah. a sprinkling of good luck mm. that was involved and has been involved since. Yeah, and very fertile ground. And I think that's that there's some great startup ideas out there. But if the ground isn't fertile for those seedlings to start to grow, it's really difficult. And that is not necess- that's not necessarily the fault of the founder, but a good founder, a good entrepreneur is able to spot that. You know, and I think that's the, your timing was not um by chance you saw that opportunity and you took it that's the, the the point I think here yeah and you know people are often amazed that we launched less than two years after I quit my job particularly because you know these aren't off-the-shelf formulas they're not off-the-shelf packaging it, it's true innovation and it's funny because I always think god it took me so long to actually do this I had this idea when I was 19 but I actually think that was also all meant to pay out like that because going getting the experiences that I got at big businesses and I spent several years in a, in a very early stage startup in between L'Oreal and Charlotte Silbury, but also the timing of the wider macro trends that I think had I launched this even a few years ago, I think it would have been too soon because the both in terms of the investment landscape potentially, but also, you know, the, the category landscape that, you know, you need the, you need wider macro trends and momentum to be there, you know, even more so for a startup, you have limited funds. And so there's only so much you can actively drive in terms of acquisition and awareness. And for my business, you know, we're an omni-channel business. And so having retail ready to make that leap into this category, which for so long, there's been no change in and no innovation in terms of, you know, from the retail landscape as well, has been really important. And Mm so I think the timing really is so important to our success so far. Um, 
And before we talk about your sort of your bigger round, I just want to quickly ask you about the friends and family piece. You said that you didn't quite feel comfortable going to friends and family. Do you still feel do you still feel that was the right thing? Do you do you wish now you had perhaps given those people the opportunity to to come in? So I did let people come in at the end. So once we'd hit, we slightly overfunded our, our pre-seed, actually not deliberately. Uh, I couldn't get hold of one of the investors that had said they wanted to come in. And so on the last day, somebody else said, well, I want that. And so, and then they ended up coming in. So, but I did at the very end. So, you know what, once we've got to a company, you know, once we've hit our minimum, so I think our minimum, we said we wanted to do it half a million. Once I knew we'd got that sorted, uh, I said, yeah, of course you can. Um, and it was a pleasure. And like that for me is, that's amazing. The idea that these, you know, just like my other angels, these people that have backed me, it was more I didn't want to feel, I think I would have felt uncomfortable if I'd raised the whole amount just through a sort of increased bias because people know me and like, like me slash love me. And so I did let people come in, but it was once I'd also convinced people that don't know me as well, which you could argue are more objective and therefore a better proof point of this being a good idea uh, already sort of committing. Yeah. Okay. I see your rationale. It kind of makes sense. I'm glad you gave them the opportunity. That's, that's fantastic. All right. So let's talk about your big chunky round because you have just secured a very impressive amount of funding, which was a total of 3 million, which is, you know, a good amount quite early on in your journey, particularly in the UK investment market. And I know that 2 million of that was equity and the other million was a slightly different uh, financing deal. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but that point where you decided to raise, am I right in thinking that was just after you'd secured commitment from Sephora to work with them? So we launched on the 1st of March 2022 and uh, pre-launch we'd been in several discussions with retailers and that's correct. So one of the retailers who we'd had commitment from and who our biggest commitment was from Sephora in North America. And so... I knew that I wanted to start the fundraising journey second time around as, as early as possible. You know, they were already, I think about what, April 2020, April 2022, there were already murmurings of sort of the landscape getting more difficult. And I was being told by lots of brilliant people, yourself included, Julia, that, you know, it was likely to get more difficult and fundraising was likely to take longer. And so I wanted to, I knew I wanted to start that as early as possible. And so the minute that we got the commitment from Sephora, um, alongside a few other retail partners, but that being by far and away the biggest, uh, I started I started the outreach. And so it was, you're right, it was very early. You know, we had about four weeks of data. Uh, but thank goodness I did, because even versus <laughs> I thought, I mean, you know, we've had an interesting fundraising journey that I'm actually in a way delighted. You know, it took us 11 months till the actual official close and we closed the fundraise quite serendipitously on our, on our first birthday. It wasn't planned. Um, and so, you know, it took us 11 months from the moment I kind of first started outreach. Uh, and so I'm really glad we did because there were lots of things I sort of hadn't fully thought about, you know, even simple things like loads of investors go away for the summer. You know, they all go away in August. So you've had all this momentum and then everyone's away for August. You're like, oh gosh, it's always September. And so by the time you get some of the meetings in, it's already October. Uh, but as well as for us, I'd originally planned to do a smaller fundraise. And so by October, we'd hit our smaller fundraise targets. We'd got to a million pounds. And we'd got that actually purely through angels. And so I had this real debate of, you know, and everyone tells you different things of, you know, do I just do a smaller round with angels now again, get through our big launches to then go out and do a bigger round again? Or do we go, you know, any much, much more than that? We knew, I knew we needed to probably go institutionalized investment. 
Uh, and that is what we ended up doing, but it wasn't the simplest path and there wasn't an obvious, at the time, it wasn't obvious which to do. And I was really deep tackling with both as to what to do. Um, but we did end up um, going for, uh, we did, well, yeah, we more than doubled that target and we went for our full amount, which we closed in March this year. Yeah, but I mean, there is there is no linear path. There is no, um, everybody's path is different. And I think the key here is that you you understand what the options are. You keep your mind open to it. You have to remain quite agile with your yeah. with your fundraising strategy as you go through. So for anybody to say this is what you must do, or this is, it, it, it isn't right because actually it's about understanding the pros and cons and then taking a balanced decision. But staying yeah. nimble, I think that's how you have to approach it. Otherwise, yeah. you can get kind of very stuck going down this single path. Um, and, and as you say, sometimes you think you're going to do an angel round and it ends up being angel and VC. Sometimes you end up throwing some crowdfunding into it. You know, there can be all sorts of ways to to structure it, which is, I think, makes it quite exciting, but also quite um, nerve wracking when you've never done it before because you just don't know whether you're doing it right. That's the thing. Yeah, I honestly think that is brilliant advice Julia and I wish I'd had it earlier because I think in every other area of a business plan yes and start up you pivot and you change all the time but there's that sense of control of you know this is what I'm setting out to do and this is my goal and so many times during the fundraising journey it changed and just being comfortable of communicating to people that have already committed that yeah yeah I said it was that was the valuation now the valuation is this we said this <laughs> yeah. was the business plan we said this was going to be what next year's sales are now it's changed and you know, that is the nature of business. And I was really fortunate because it worked in our favour that we'd, you know, it got to October, which is when things started to get really quite tough in the UK here um, in terms of the economic landscape. And everyone was telling me to close because, you know, it felt like we were going into free fall and loads of lessons sat on my hands. And I was really nervous that, well, if we didn't close, people that had said yes might pull out. But then I went over to the US and, from that moment actually in October, Sephora increased their commitment to us three times. So it started that we were going to be launching just online with two of our ranges and we went to be launching all three ranges and then we got confirmation we we're going to be wanted they wanted to launch us in stores. So we'd be the first ever UK intimate care brand in a Sephora store. And so we got all this amazing momentum. Uh but what I knew that meant is that we were going to need we were going to need fuel in the fire to, okay. to deliver on that. And even VCs I'd spoken to that had said, look, go in, you're still too early. You know, you still haven't got enough traction. Great that you landed this retail distribution, but you need to go and prove the revenues. Um, but it's chicken and egg, right? Because you need you need funding to prove, you know, to, to drive revenue. Uh, and so that was when I actually went back out to VCs I'd spoken to. And actually my my lead VC, who I spoke to even before I'd launched Luna Daily, because, you know, they were the VC I really wanted to have on board. They'd actually said no to me earlier in the year. And they said, look, you're too early. We love it, but just come back to us in six months. And I remember WhatsApping uh, the founder and saying, oh, I've got some new news. Can we chat? And I said, look, I know you said no. How about you say yes? And uh, <laughs> I went, <laughs> not as sort of top, top launch that, but um, essentially, essentially that. And I, I, I convinced them, you know, that, you know, this is, this is unprecedented what we've secured and, this is our inflection point and the opportunity is now. And at 4 p.m. on Christmas Eve, uh, that they agreed. And so um, I think having the confidence to just ask, you know, you don't know if you don't ask. And uh, to, to, yeah, just to, to, to be just to be straight talking about things. Absolutely. Um, 
and to not take no as an answer. <laughs> and it's funny now because we joke. We went for celebratory drinks a few weeks ago, and I was recalling that week when they said no, and he was like, "We never said no, did we?" And I was like, "Yeah, you did." He was, like, "I don't remember that," and I was like, "I do." <laughs> Selective memory there. <laughs> <laughs> so many good things. I mean, so many learnings from that. I mean. Yeah, the building the relationships of investors, uh, you know, early, which you did a really good job of, I think. Um, but this timing thing, I mean, t- timing is everything. And you had so many timing things to to sort of play with and to juggle with because you had coming out the back of the pandemic. Then you had a sort of sliding into this economic crisis, the timing of the, the commitments from Sephora. And, and there's a lot of plates you've got to be spinning yeah. It's not easy, is it, to kind of figure your way through that? No, it was it was honestly the most difficult time of my entire life because, you know, when particularly October, November, where we were ready to close and I was being pushed to close, but we'd had this news from Sephora and and I had this sort of momentum back within the VCs I'd been spoken to, um, who were really keen, but you know, the VC process takes time, you know, due diligence and everything else takes time uh so I wanted to I thought it was the right thing to do to last it out but we were financially run out of money you know I hadn't you know I'd I'd budgeted that it could take nine months worst case um and as a startup I couldn't have couldn't have started the process much earlier you know we we're only a month into launch and so it was really difficult because on a personal level I've never put myself in a position where I can't pay rent next month and that's the feeling of you know we are we have no money left um but the right the right thing is is to is to keep going with the raise and also you're in a position where essentially you're, you're negotiating right and so you can't let on too much that oh god we're about to run out of money because then you, you have no negotiation power whatsoever mm-hmm. uh so i actually put in another another loan for my own personal finances to keep us going to tide us over um because obviously we ended up closing in march and it was a really hard time because i was burnt out I needed a break, but I couldn't. I couldn't have a break um, because we, you know I had to keep going, and so it was. It was really, really hard, um, and I'm sure lots of founders will attest to fundraising being difficult. Um, apart from running out of money, I actually really enjoyed the process. I really enjoyed yeah. fundraising, yeah. but that was it. Was really tough. Yeah. yeah, it's. I mean, and again, it's such a common story. And I was, I, I, um, you know, when I was raising money for my last business, we raised a couple of million exactly the same position we're at that point where we had about three months worth of cash left and it was really hairy and we had to we took a personal loan from a friend which I felt really uncomfortable with Mm. Um, but it was the only way to do it to bridge that you have to find a way to bridge it and give yourself that breathing space but you also know that this is really like (laughs) this is really scary moment because it all hangs in the balance of you getting that deal so but taking that risk you know, when you believe in your business, you can take that risk. You have to have that belief. You have, to, which yeah. you clearly have. Um, yeah. But yeah, but timing, so, 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 so stressful. Hello, it's Julia here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast episode. I just want to take a really short break in this interview to tell you about my best selling book, which I know you're going to find super helpful as you think about and prepare for your own fundraising journey. It's called Raise, the Female Founder's Guide to Securing Investment, and it's available in paperback, hardback, on your Kindle, and now also as an audiobook. In this book, 
you're going to discover the answers to all the questions you might have around raising investment and specifically how to overcome the challenges you might face as a female founder. The guide follows the five-step process that I've been using with all my amazing clients that entered the arena since 2015, who've raised over £20 million in funding. And you'll find over 35 inspirational case studies of female founders who've successfully raised investment in the book. And you'll also get to hear my own story of raising over £2 million of investment for my last business, which wasn't without its challenges. So you can get the book on Amazon, on your Kindle or on Audible. Just type in Raise, the Female Founder's Guide to Securing Investment, and you'll find it. And so and, and in that whole process of you going out to do that bigger round, I mean, I guess you must have spoken to quite a few people. What did you get pushback on, on you know, from people about specific things? What were the things that people were like, yeah, not really sure about this? oh loads I mean (laughs) it's it's amazing and you know I've been so inspired by reading other people's stories and there was one that really stuck with me which is the founder of Canva and she's um she was rejected by a hundred VCs and the hundredth and one the hundred and one she said was the one that said yes and I remember reading her story and I think it was particularly dark week I think I had COVID (laughs) and I was presenting to people and uh, reading her story really, really helped me because, uh, you know, Canva, for those that don't know, is now, I think, the most, the high, highest valued female owned, female founder business in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, thank goodness she didn't listen to the 100. Uh, and yeah, there's, I mean, it was too, on the one hand, it was almost more frustrating that everybody I met was like, this is such an amazing idea. How has this never existed? This white this opportunity, the timing, everyone's so positive. But then we'd just go, oh, it's just a bit early. We, we, we just we, we invested a bit later it's like, oh, it'd almost be easier if people were like you know what it's not a very good idea it would have been easier <laughs> you know what fine I won't do it but to have all this amazing feedback and then be like come back to us in six months was actually frustrating and like exhausting um but when I did get pushed back the well yeah the number one pushback was you just too early and you know I I don't know what other brands you know we just landed Sephora we've we just landed the most prestigious, amazing retailer in the world in their biggest market. And so I don't know what brands that haven't yet landed that would are doing. This, this is this is a big it's a big issue in the UK investment market, I think. Yeah. Is that, that, that that inability to take risk. If you were raising in America, it'd be very different. Because yeah, people take so, take a bigger risk on on an idea, you know. Exactly. And mm. you know, um and so it's yeah, the, the biggest pushback I had was that you're just too early. You know, yeah. you need to go and get more revenue or more proof points uh but then there were some really interesting ones that you know oh we're not sure this category opportunity is big enough and you know in our pitch deck <laughs> we are first of all we're we're speaking to 51 percent of the population devolver so i'd say that's pretty large second of all we're bridging intimate care and body care you know body care is 236 billion pound category globally uh and we're then tapping into different life stages so motherhood and menopause both of which are in double digit growth and so uh you know that that was difficult you know I, well, I just dis- disagreed yeah. but the opportunity wasn't there um and then there was just some you know, sort of confusion so I had one um one VC who said well the vagina is self-cleaning so you don't think there's a need for this product and I actually managed to go and meet with them um, we had a really funny session actually where it basically felt like I was a primary school teacher in the sex ed class 
explaining the difference between a vulva and a vagina and that's you know even just that confusion is so at the root of what we're trying to do uh but um that's interesting and did you did you did you find did you speak to a lot of a lot of female investors along the way or what what was your what was your experience uh, there some i mean we today we are still over 70 percent owned which i'm really proud of and we have an amazing female portion of our cap table but disproportionately spoke to men um Mm. and you know what it was uh even though it Often the conversations would start with sort of, oh, well, I'm, I'm obviously not the uh, target market. Uh, and <laughs> I would almost relish in the amount of times in a, in a meeting I could say the word vulva. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I would, my response would be, well, yeah, you're not, but your wife or your mum or your daughter or your girlfriend might be. So go and have a chat with them. I'll send you some product and then come back to me. And by the second meeting, the response from whoever in their life had had an introduction to the brand or tried the product or read the pitch deck was, phenomenally you know overwhelmingly positive and so actually I don't you know I didn't speak to as many women as I did men I definitely spoke to more men and that is reflective of the landscape today uh but you know I think alongside asking women in their lives but also just commercially seeing the opportunity you know commercially seeing the growth of this category uh and potentially commercially seeing the advantageous I think you know that more investors wanting to back women uh, mm. and whether that definitely for some of the men on my cap table is because they really passionately believe in changing this gender bias and I think for some people I spoke to it was it was just commercial it was you know we can see the opportunity here of why it's a good thing to back a woman yeah um I mean it'd be weird if it not weird maybe it would yeah it would be weird if it was a man who was running this particular business I think <laughs> there are a lot there are lots so. of brilliant men there are lots of brilliant men who are helping me run this business, as there are lots of brilliant women. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my personal experience and story is is really important to, to resonating with, with our core hard target consumer. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so let's talk about the structure of this deal, which is an interesting one. So three million in total, two million of which was equity. Um, talk us through what it looks like and who are the investors, how is it structured, and how is that other million pounds coming into your business yes so the two million pound equity has been led by a consumer vc called red rice who are a uk consumer fund who are in my opinion phenomenal um headed up by tom um the reason i was so excited about working with them was their focus on brands that sort of see themselves as rebels that want to change the status quo that do things differently um, and their team is absolutely phenomenal uh, so Red Rice are our lead VC, uh, followed by Joyance, who are our other VC partner we brought on in this round. Uh, Joyance's mission is to invest in Enjoy, which from the minute I first read that, I felt they'd be such a perfect partner for us. You know, this is a category that has been the opposite of Joy and for so long has, yeah, the opposite emotions for women than Joy, you know, embarrassment, stigma, shame. And uh, Claire Cherry, who's one of the partners there, I met fairly early on in the investment journey and I absolutely loved her. Uh, And she actually, you know, before Red Rice had even come on board as a lead, um, she really, really flew the flag for me internally and I had a commitment from them, um, even without having, you know, a lead because they were a follow-on VC. Uh, The rest of it is made up for my angels. And so... I had an amazing follow-on from existing angels who I'd already raised um, previously from as well. We brought on board some new angels. Um, 
then the final um, part of our investment raise has come through um, financing. And so uh, as a business, we are stock intensive. You know, any consumer product business, particularly FMCG, will be very stock intensive. And what that means is the cash flow in the ether for the moment, you have to pay your suppliers to when, you know, either the consumer pays you directly for your D2C or the retailer pays you. That differential can be pretty big. And, you know, particularly during covid lead times have increased within the consumer world, everything from, you know, sourcing of packaging componentry, raw materials, all the way through to, you know, shipping, et cetera. And so having a facility um, that enables us to, to bridge that gap um, is what that facility is for. So it's actually, we use it for two things, for inventory and also for performance marketing, so for e-commerce. And as part of as part of the structure, we actually get the support of their internal team around kind of our DTC econometrics. And so um, because they've got experience backing lots of other brilliant brands, we actually get that resource from them. And so re- really it's been a perfect, a perfect marrying of the both because it doesn't make sense for startups if they can to, to use equity to drive to, to fund stock because it's it's not, you know, you're gonna get that money back. It's just sort of a supply chain um metric. Um and so yeah, it's brilliant that we've landed that alongside our equity because it's going to really allow us to scale quicker because it means we're going to have deeper pockets to spend on marketing uh, and to innovate quicker because it means we're going to be able to not just fulfil productions um, and productions at scale, but it's going to mean that we can move forward on our innovation production runs um, much quicker than we would have been able to. That's incredible. So what a great blend of investors you've got, people who are experts in e-commerce, in consumer, in brand angels who can really help you vcs who likely will have more money to be able to follow on in the future i mean it's you know a very very well structured structured yeah. deal and not yeah. and you're not overly reliant on one particular investor either and i think that's that's really important to know because you're a team it's a team effort yeah um, and i have really to say <clears throat> you know we'd we'd already started this conversations around you know people either call it factoring or stock financing or a combination of the two and so we knew it was something we wanted to explore because we had enough historical data to kind of justify it. You know, you typically can't get it on day one because mm. anyone giving you credit wants to see that you've got some trading history. Uh, but actually, it, it, that, you know, Velocity came on board quite serendipitously. I met Flavia um, at an event, a networking event, and we just really connected um, personally. And I think, again, it's an example of don't listen to what people tell you. You know, I was told these are the ways that you go and get stock financing through these facilities. And through meeting Flavia and us connecting and us, me telling her more about my business, Flavia has really helped, you know, actually shape their business a bit differently. This is, this is the mm. first time they've invested in a business of our style, which is not pure D2C. Um, we're on each other and that she's, you know, she's been brilliant at kind of supporting us within her business. And so I think meeting, like forging real relationships with people and seeing this as a two-way thing, you know, if you back your business, yes, you're, gaining funds and network and other great valuable skills from your investors but they're hopefully gaining loads and so really seeing it as a two-way two-way street um, and how you can both really partner together I think has been a learning for me yeah so important I'm really glad you did that because you say most people like oh we're not going to be able to do that kind of financing until I'm doing 10 20 grand a month but you know you know VCs and investment vehicles they do make exceptions where they really believe in the business and the founder so well done for making those relationships. So female, for the female founders that are out there listening, of which there are many, any sort of parting shots of advice that, that you would give them about? Um, 
how to how to be successful at raising investment yeah and you go what do I I don't know if I would be the I don't know if I'm the person to say how to definitely raise money and be successful uh but um the first is build the most incredible team of people around you that if you are early stage revenue and therefore you don't have proof yet uh in actual rate of sale consumer feedback what people are backing is you but also your team and so um, that doesn't have to be a full-time team on payroll uh that can be your group of advisors around you so when when setting out with Luna Daily, I actually wrote down a piece of paper who were the in each function. I sort of split out, you know, brand, people, commercial, finance, ops, who were the best people I'd ever met in my career. And I, I wrote a list down and then I went and contacted them. Yeah. Uh, the dream, and, the dream, the dream, t- the dream team, isn't it? It's the dream. Yeah. Team. And actually, and, and aiming high. And why not? What's the worst that can happen? They say yeah. no. I mean, exactly. And yeah. I'm so fortunate that, you know, our director is. Sarah Watt, she was CMO at Charlotte Tilbury and has got a career, you know, more than 25 years in the beauty industry. Our supply chain ops advisor is James Houston, who is the number five employee at Charlotte Tilbury and who I've worked with at L'Oreal. Um, I have uh, our product development is, is outsourced by a, a team called Victoria and Sandra, who are, I think, the best in the entire industry. And the list goes on. Like, I've been so fortunate. As you would say, again, maybe it's not luck, Katie, maybe it's, you know, <laughs> My approach but but i have the most amazing people and um our growth advisor based in the us karen uh, was a vp of benefit cosmetics you know and i really actually it wasn't everybody i knew but i went out to set out who did i think and then asked them who else they knew and lots of these again came just through kind of recommendations and yeah you'll be amazed at how um what drives people isn't isn't always financial you know most of these people when i met them even now still have other projects or other jobs and so, you know, financially, you don't necessarily have to offer them loads of money because, well, A, I couldn't, didn't have any, but also that's not what's driving them. That actually, mm-hmm. you know, what what drives people is different. And so I think get a great team and find out what would motivate them to join you. Ask the question and be, mm-hmm. be open and say, you know, I can't pay you, but what would motivate you? Uh, it's my, my first advice. Um, my second advice is find out what your values are. And I don't think I truly understood what that meant until I had a session with a life coach where she said, you know, your values are the things that like really get you out of bed and drive you. Like the reason you get out of bed, they're not necessarily to do with work, they're often related. And in our very first session, she was able to identify that two of my values, which are freedom and fun, I wasn't getting any of. And it was one of the reasons I was feeling so burnt out because, you know, someone would say, oh, just go and sit and watch some TV. But that for me wasn't freedom or fun because I'd sit on the sofa and my brain would be like, and so I could enjoy watching TV. Uh, She was also able to identify that linked to those two sound was really important to me, which I'd never, you know, I'd never known. My 30s didn't know this. And so now for me, the things outside of work that are really important, I do. So, you know, I've been to see Coldplay an embarrassing number of times now because I get fun, freedom and sound all at once. You know, going for sourcing out the best Mexican margaritas in London with my best pal, going on a dog walk, doing a ridiculously intense workout where like my brain can't think about anything else. Uh, you know, the things that, and they are so important because it's so easy for it to become all consuming. Mm-hmm. And it's in the good times, it's all consuming because you love it so much. So you don't want to stop. But in the harder times, it's all consuming because it's there and actually training your brain to switch off all the time, even when it's good and bad 
I think is the only way to sustainably carry on because I've had to stop myself. Like sometimes I'm working late into night, not because like I'm stressed or because I have to, but because I'm just, I, I love it. I really love what I do, but I think that's not healthy. And it's really healthy to find things and be consciously aware of the things that bring, bring you joy and drive your values. Cause ultimately you will then be a much probably more sustainable, happy, healthy founder <laughs> yes. of a startup. Oh, uh, I, couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more with that point. All of those points you just made. I couldn't agree more, as we were talking about before we started the interview. Cold showers in the morning. <laughs> oh yeah, and cold showers. <laughs> or like, uh, or like, dan- or you know, for me, it's like putting the music on really loud and dancing around the kitchen. Dog walks the same, and I, you know, I agree. I have my five values up on the wall in front of me, yeah. and everything I do has to match those values. Otherwise, it just doesn't really work. So that yeah. that that ba- that you know that baseline stuff. It's the same as the work you did when you were building your startup and you look at what are the values of this brand yeah. is understanding your own personal values and what makes you yeah. work. If you can get those two right, they are incredibly strong foundations yeah. to, to be successful as an entrepreneur and building a, an amazing startup. Yeah. For sure. And I did just think of one more, Julia, uh, yeah. <laughs> which is uh, find yourself buddies. Like everyone talks about like networking, mm. but I feel like networking is quite a sterile or everyone thinks, everyone imagines, I think, those like networking rooms where everyone's eating, no one knows whether to have the canapé. I always do. But um, finding yourself buddies, which are like people, like throughout, I think as you grow in your career, people always talk about having mentors, but having a buddy, and now everybody in our business has a buddy, is somebody I think that you know, does your job or similar, and you can really help each other. But for me, particularly during the fundraising process, it was people that I could phone up and be like, I have no idea what I'm meant to do about this. Well, like, <laughs> I have a few of them. Uh, you know, they're either you know, six months ahead of me in their journey, mm-hmm. and so I've, they've been through it. Um, so my good friend, Ben, my good friend, Rebecca, where I could phone them and, like, be completely honest, being like, mm-hmm. I didn't ask this question, I didn't know what to do, well, what do you think you could do about this? And it's different to networking because it's, like, a true friendship. Where mm-hmm. Well, it's, 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 it's that peer-to-peer support, isn't it, that yeah I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more I mean and it has to be within yeah. your space because yeah friends and family like you try and explain it to them and I think you have to have people that truly get it mm. uh and so yeah finding yourself those people and if there's anybody listening that wants a person I'm very happy <laughs> <Yeah>. to <laughs> well it's one of the, it's one of the things we do I mean you know you know obviously you enter the arena we're all about supporting women with raising investment and our you know we've built in a, a community element to our fundraising academy we didn't have that at the start but we just realized how important it was for other women to sort of kind of be on the you know they know that other people are on the journey kind of going oh my god this is a this is a nightmare <laughs> or kind of going yeah actually I've just had this win and I've just secured this bit of investment and everybody can kind of cheer you on that that community piece is something that I've realised over the years is is um is so important because it is quite lonely. I mean, it's lonely enough building a, a startup, running a business. You know, I I feel that too with my business. Sometimes it's a lonely place, but if you've yeah. got some of those peers around you, and as you say, you've got some great advisors around you. What a, what a brilliant blend to see you through the good times and the tough times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really good advice. That's really good advice. Yeah. Find your buddies. Yeah. Amazing. So so now you're busy spending all this money that you've uh, you've raised. Uh, well, actually, I'm like, I'm like it's, the, it's the team joke that I'm the biggest inge because we have this award called the VFM Award, which my old FD at another business I worked introduced, and it's the Value for Money Award. And uh, no, the opposite, actually. I think partly fundraising took so long and was so difficult. I'm like, I need to not do that for as long as possible. 
so and but also you know continue to be honest it's continuing nothing has drastically changed you know we have yes we have larger budgets to drive bigger marketing campaigns a bigger team uh you know global expansion product development but we're not spending loads of money um and because we are still fairly early stage in our journey and so I think it's the responsible thing to do and so you know it's definitely a balance of spending where we need to spend and you know uh I've been been wise about I mean you you have to deploy the capital that's what it's for but yeah Yeah. as you say it's not it's not about suddenly you know getting big fancy shiny offices not I mean it's not about that is it it's about making meaningful decisions about where you're going to deploy the capital yeah um and you know I actually get a weird kick out of it of you know getting a good deal or feeling you know yeah. so um it's definitely you know spending to drive growth for business um but not spending a huge not spending unresponsibly mm. and global expansion i mean you know america that's an interesting avenue for you to explore i i'm imagining that if if that if that takes off there the potential is huge and actually would possibly need more investment to support that rollout do you see that on the horizon uh so yeah it's true that america just by scale of not just you know the country itself but this category you know it's the fastest growing category and the largest absolute size of category outside of asia so it's true that it's it's huge for us and so succeeding in america is our absolute top priority uh in terms of raising again you know it's not something we're proactively thinking about now you know my my number one objective is driving sustainable, profitable growth because ultimately that's what means the business is, is a success. Um, and so we'll see. But you know, if if in the future um, the right you know the right thing to unlock further growth internationally or new markets or new categories is the right thing to do to to go out and raise again, um, then you know I'm not afraid of that. <laughs> Still got a bit of PTSD, but give me a few months and I wouldn't be afraid of it. Um, uh, but at the moment, what we're focusing on is is the next two years, you know, the next two years of driving up our revenues um, and, and traction and and using this fundraise to really take us to the next, our next inflection point. Brilliant. Well, Katie, I think you've played, played it brilliantly and um, I wish you all the best. Um, as I say, your products are great. I love them. I'm already a fan. So... Um, I can't wait to see what happens next. <laughs> Thank you so much, Julia. Thank and you. likewise, I am I am the biggest cheerleader mm-hmm. of what you do um, for, you know, the direct and indirect support you've given me, partly through your own advice to me, but also just by seeing you, you know, every time one of your posts pops up on LinkedIn, I felt like it gave me a boost I needed. Uh, so, yeah, thank you. Similarly, I am the biggest cheerleader of what you do. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your story. Take care. Thanks for following Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. This content is all provided to you for free. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe so you never miss another one. Enter the Arena has helped hundreds of female founders fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business. Our first-hand experience, expert guidance and proven programs help female founders unleash the Wonder Woman inside. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.entertheArena.co.uk. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.